Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. How are y'all doing? Yeah, God is good. Uh, We are in the book of Esther. Esther's plan is what I want to talk to you about. Esther's plan from chapter 5. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, just find your way there. Last week we saw how Esther put her life on the line by going to the king uninvited. Uh, The risk to her life was death. And she doesn't go to the king in her own strength, right? She depends upon the Lord. She fasts for three days. But she still has to go to the king. And the same is true in the Christian life. In every Christian's life, there's going to be times when there's no need to pray about what we need to do. We just need to pray for God's power to do it. And I'm afraid that, that too often we pray about discerning what God wants us to do when it's already clear because He's the one who's positioned us to make that statement to our niece or to our nephew or our cousin or our son or our daughter. He is perfectly positioned us to serve in preschool or children's ministry or uh, as we come back from the pandemic to park cars in the parking lot or to greet people. There's something that he's gifted us to do. And then we say to the pastor or the associate pastor or whoever says, hey, could you help us out with this? Well, I'll pray about it. I'm so glad Esther didn't take 12 months to pray about what she needed to do. Because if she'd have taken 12 months to pray about what she needed to do, everybody would have been dead. And there would have been no Messiah to come through the line of the Jews. And maybe God's calling you to step up and serve in some way. And you don't need to pray to deflect responsibility. You just need to go to God and pray for His power to clearly do what He's already called you to do. For some of you, that's the end of the sermon. You can just check out. You know what it is. You just write it down. And we'll give an invitation. You can come to the front. You can say to the pastor, I've heard it ten weeks in a row. I'm ready to serve. Praise God. Praise God that Esther realizes she's got to go to the king and she goes to dependence upon the Lord, trusting that he will reward her obedience whether, whether she lives or she dies. We sense in Esther's faithfulness and in her selfless obedience on the third day that the story of Esther is beginning to turn. Everything is set against God and His people and the promise of His Son, but the story is beginning to turn, and yet the danger to Esther and the Jews has not been resolved. Esther has gained access to the king, but now she has to address him. And in verse 3, the king says, Look, I'll give you up to half the kingdom, which is his kingly way of saying, I'm going to be exceptionally generous with your request. The the challenge for Esther, of course, is what she wants from the king is impossible. God has given her favor with the king, but she still needs God to intervene. We saw in chapter 1, this is a volatile king who can turn instantly when he is rebuffed. Esther wants the king to revoke an irrevocable law that has been sought by the second most powerful man in the kingdom named Haman, the right-hand man of the king, and it was sealed with the promise of 10,000 pieces of silver, and to top it all off, it had been endorsed with the king's own signet ring. Furthermore, she was a Jew, 
The decree was for the destruction of the Jews, which means to make her request and to help the king understand why she was making it. She was going to have to tell the king, by the way, I've been deceiving you for the last five years, not telling you who I really am. What do you want? No big deal. I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. It's not that easy. So what do you say in the moment that a king who is all about himself asks you what you want? Let's look at verses 4 through 8. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom. It shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Would you bow with me? God, help this text to find its way into our hearts today. God, we want it to hit our heads, but we also want it to land in our hearts such that we would be your people, pursuing your plan and your agenda in the world wholeheartedly, no matter what it costs, no matter even when we don't fully understand. We ask for your grace to do it in Jesus' name, amen. We know that Esther trusts the Lord because she emerges from a three-day fast and puts feet to her faith and goes to the king. But she does more than that. She also goes with a plan. A plan that no doubt she discerned during her time of fasting and relying on the Lord. How do we know she has a plan? Verse 4 tells us, as she answers the king's question, that she already has a feast prepared for the king. Which means that she was hoping she was going to live, that the king wasn't going to kill her for coming uninvited, And it means that she had a plan. So the first thing I want you to notice in verses 4 through 8 is this. Planning is not opposed to faith in the Lord. You say, well, that's that's pretty obvious. I, I don't know if it's so obvious in church life sometimes. As Esther fasts, the idea of a feast comes to mind. And I don't know about you, but if I fast for three days, a feast comes to my mind as well. I mean, that's not a, that's not a bad plan. So, so she puts on her royal robes and gets ready, looking probably a little, little weak, a little tepid, hasn't eaten or drink, drank in three days. That's a hard verb to parse. Drink, drank, drunk. She hasn't drunk in three days. She goes to the king with her royal robes on, and if he lets her live... She's ready to host a royal banquet. Her planning is not contrary to faith in God. In fact, the plan emerges in the process of trusting the Lord. The Lord isn't absent just because she has a plan. It still requires that the Lord would spare her life, that the king would accept her. It requires that the Lord would overcome the irrevocable law, the king's pride, and the king's blind loyalty to Haman. There are many things that God's going to have to do. It doesn't mean that it's wrong for her to have a plan. Order and organization are not at odds with faith in the Lord. And yet the idea in many churches today that it is, is rampant. 
I, I, have, I have heard of churches that have a budget that is never met by like two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. I'm like, why is your budget four hundred thousand dollars above your receipts year after year after year? Well, that's where we'd like to be. Well, it's not reality. So why don't you start with a plan that matches reality and then ask, well, the Lord's going to provide. Well, He's not just going to provide because you're thoughtless in your planning. He wants you to use your brain. People sometimes throw that around like, well, the Lord's going to provide. And what they mean by that is, so that means I don't have to give anything, right? They, they use the theological truth to deny their personal responsibility. Churches and individuals do it all the time. But let me ask you a question. Why would God provide for a church that doesn't care enough about what He provides to have a plan to use it for His purposes? Why would He provide for your home? If you don't have a plan to use what He gives you according to and for His purposes. Planning as a church and in our homes is an act of faith that God's going to provide. In finances, you say, well, why'd you pick finances? It was an easy example, but it's just one example. We could give examples for worship and programming and facilities and missions and evangelism and small group strategy and much, much more. And the reality in local church life is the magic happens at the intersection of all those things, which is God designed local churches to be led by a team of pastors constantly seeking the mind of Christ as revealed in the unchanging word on the one hand and always looking to culture on the other so that we can continue to chart a plan forward for the people of God that isn't hatched in 1957, 1997, or even 2017, but it is right now, today. What does God want us to do to reach the world in which He has situated us? Now this, of course, does not mean that there are never times that the Lord changes our plans or that he never works spontaneously in the unplanned moments of life of course god works in the spontaneous unplanned moments of life proverbs 16 9 says the heart of man plans his way but the lord establishes his steps earlier this week you can't make this up earlier this week i'm driving by my neighbor's house and i pray for him when i drive by his house that's my plan i see my neighbor's houses driving i pray for him Larry Perdue, is he here today? Well, his wife's Amy here. Every time I drive by his house, he's, a, he's headed towards five years recovery of cancer. And I'm praying to that mark because that's kind of like the magic number. You get to that number and things are good. I didn't plan to say this, Amy. I'm sorry. But every time I pass Larry's house, I pray for Larry. It just directs my praying. So I go by my neighbor's house and I say, God, I haven't had a chance to talk to neighbor so-and-so for several years about the gospel, and I know he doesn't know you, I would really like an opportunity to go talk to him, but it's going to be awkward if I just drive by and, and say, hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus, because the last time we talked, he didn't seem too comfortable with that. So I need a really good excuse to go to his house, but I don't have a plan. So what are you going to do about it, Lord? That was on Monday. On Thursday, my neighbor's mail came to my mailbox. Yeah. True story. We talked for 25 minutes about the Lord. He, he may come one Sunday. I pray that he does. But I didn't have a plan. I had a plan to pray, but I didn't have a plan for how I was going to get to his house. God just did it. He, he worked in the spontaneous moments of life and he had a postman put a parcel in my post box. 
But somehow, and here's what I don't understand, somehow we tend to think of the spontaneous moments as more spiritual and more God, more like God is working than the hard work of knowing and following God's plan and God's word and understanding the time and the place and the people to which he has called us and then planning accordingly. And that's unfortunate because there's a lot of Christians waiting around for a spontaneous moment when what God wants you to do is set about planning to do what he's already clearly told you to do. Planning and preparation are not opposed to the power of God in your life. Strategy is not opposed to resting in the sovereignty of God. Thinking about the details is not a denial that it is God who has to deliver you. And yet somehow, we've got this strange idea that it's only when God works spontaneously that God is working. Crazy talk. Where does this idea even come from? I think it comes from a misapplication of the book of Acts. Acts is a wonderful book of transition between the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and His ascension and His pouring out of the Spirit and the establishment of the church and then the pastoral epistles that Paul gives for the regular, planned, programmatic life of the church until Jesus returns again. And so everybody's like, well, if we were in Acts, life would be great. And then we ignore the pastoral epistles. And don't get me wrong, Acts still happens, but we've got the pastorals that tell you to order a church, do church in this way, this is how things are to run. Paul says things like this in the pastoral epistles in Titus, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Churches that thrive, not for a flash in a pan moment, but thrive generation after generation after generation have two things built into their DNA. The first thing they have built into their DNA is an unwavering commitment to do what God has clearly said we have to do. God says there's going to be a pastoral team leading the local church. We're going to have a pastoral team leading the local church. God said corporate worship in person is important then we might watch online in a pandemic, but as soon as I can safely get back, I'm going to be with the people of God because God said so. We're going to have meaningful church membership with accountability because that's the model we see in the New Testament. There are certain things that we can't change no matter what. They are fixed in the Word of God. But then there's a lot of things where we have flexibility and adaptability based on our time in history where God has placed us in this moment. And so churches have on the one hand in their governing documents and in the hearts of their people a riveted firm conviction, we're going to do this book. And on the other hand, they hold loosely to the things that we can be flexible in, the time of our service, the instruments we use in music, the programs that we offer and what they call them. Who gives a rip? If it allows us to reach more people for the glory of God and the, and the good of His church and the glory of Christ. Why, why would we get wrapped up in the, the minutia like that and say, well, Constitution Bylaws, Section A, Section 3.2 says you call it Sunday school. So we're going to call it Sunday school. You know what? Churches that do that, they die. They die. And at North Roanoke, so help me God, we're going to be a church that has in our DNA an unwavering commitment to follow the Word of God on the other hand 
and a tenacious, dogged determination to be flexible in everything else. So help us, God, no matter what it costs us. You say, well, that's hard. That means we're going to have to change some stuff that I like, that we've been doing since Jesus was in the cradle. (laughs) Yes, it does. And you know what was hard for Esther to do? It was hard for her to go to the king and know that she might die. We should rejoice when we have opportunities to lay down our lives for the glory of God because it means God still loves you and He's given you a chance to die to yourself for the glory of Jesus. I'm glad Esther made the sacrifice of going to the king uninvited, and I'm glad that she had a plan. Now, I want to say something to the planners in the congregation today, because some of you are planners. You're like, that's right, i got a plan. i got a spreadsheet for everything. When When my mother passes away, which I hope is not for another thousand years, but when that day comes, I will be able to tell you about her entire life through the to-do list that she has accumulated. Some of you are planners to the nth degree. But let me tell you something. Planning doesn't excuse us from acting. It's not enough to make a list about what you need to do. you got to do it. Esther fasts for three days and then she does what God tells her to do. She discerns a plan and then she executes. So what I'm not talking about, church, is paralysis by analysis. We're just going to sit around and generate spreadsheets about our spreadsheets and reports about our reports. I'll never forget my first real job. I was asked to make a report of the reports that I was having to report. And I said, if you ask me for a report on the reports, guess what? You're asking for too many reports. You know why I can't do my job? Because you want 17 reports about my job. So I'm not saying we sit in our little cubby hole and just plan all the time. All right, for you spontaneous people. All right. So planning that is consistent with the purposes of God is not opposed to the power of God. Secondly, we see in verses 6 through 8 that we must follow the Lord's plan even when we don't fully understand it. We must follow the Lord's plan even when we don't fully understand it. In verse 7, do you see verse 7? Esther Esther is invited to tell the king what she wants. She's prepared this lavish meal. The king has drank his wine. He's feeling really good. And again, he offers up to half the kingdom. And Esther starts to answer the question. She says, my wish and my request is she's going to go for it. It's perfect. The king is ready to hear the message. Everything is right. My wish and my request is, and then in the back of her mind, God said two feasts. Don't ask him yet. But God, I'm ready for this to be done with. I'm ready for it to be over with. Can I just go ahead and get this over with already? We got any impatient people in the congregation today? God, it's right. I am so thankful for the plan of feast, but this feast is working, so let's just use this feast. Little does she know if we get to verse to chapter 6 what God is going to do between the first and second feast overnight. You've got to keep reading, and we'll get there in a future sermon. But God's going to change everything. All she's going to do is have two parties, and in between, she's going to have the same feast, ask the question, and all the fundamentals have changed because of what God did in a night. 
It made no sense to her brain why God said two feasts and why she wouldn't go ahead and ask. And in that moment, she probably pauses for just a second. She wrestles with the Lord and she says, Lord, if you want two feasts, I'm going to do two feasts, but I really don't understand it. And the only reason she could give you or me why she asked for a second feast rather than asking for the people of God to be delivered is because that's what God told her to do. Dowden says this, as we seek to be used by God for the building of His kingdom, we need to follow the Lord's plan and timing even if we don't understand either one of them. Esther is not only following God's plan for two feasts, she's also following God's plan for how saved wives relate to their unsaved husbands. The king is her husband, technically. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their Wives, Esther is winning her pagan husband, not with a lot of words, but with her conduct. And in verse 8, she asks the king and Haman to come to a second feast the next day where she promises she will make her request known. Not only is her strategy honoring God because she's honoring her husband even if he doesn't deserve it, she's also wise. She's, She's pretty sharp. Because implicitly, if the king comes to a banquet where she's promising she's going to give her request, he's kind of saying, if I come to the banquet, well, I'm going to grant your request. But there's something a bit deeper than Esther's subtlety and strategy at work in the two-feast plan. Do you remember how the whole book of Esther began back in chapter 1? Do you remember that there were two feasts in the first chapter? The king throws a feast for 180 days, and then he throws one for seven days, and then he asks his queen to come, and she refuses, and he puts the queen out. But what is happening now is a picture of God's divine reversal. You see, Esther wasn't supposed to go to the king uninvited. She defies the king, but the king doesn't put her out. He accepts her, and now that she's been accepted, what does she give to the king? Two feasts. Esther probably doesn't have all this information. She likely doesn't see that God is providing for us a picture of the great reversal that He is orchestrating behind the scenes. But the lesson is clear. Just because we don't understand the Lord's plan fully doesn't mean that we lack the information to act faithfully. Now, I've got that on a slide, and I want to get there because that's, that's one worth taking a picture of. Just because... We may not understand the Lord's plan fully. Does not mean we lack the information to act faithfully. If you wait to understand everything about what God is asking you to do, you probably will never get around to doing it. It's God. He's sovereign. He's Lord. He's in control. Why why is it that the Lord sometimes gives us plans we don't fully comprehend? Dowden says... Perhaps it's because he's God, and he wants us to trust that he is alive, that he's present, that he'll provide, and that he'll keep his promises, so that when, in spite of our plans, when the outcome comes, we don't go, look at how smart I am, look at how great the strategy was. Instead, we say, look at what God did. Why does God tell wives to submit to their husband? And husbands to love their wife sacrificially like Jesus loved the church? Why are husband and wife to leave mommy and daddy 
and start their own home and become one flesh? We understand some of the reasons why. We can, we can touch up against it, but at the end of the day, do you remember what Paul says about this? He says, the mystery is profound. In other words, marriage is a profound mystery. Any married people here who can agree with that? It's not easy. It's a mystery. And I'm here to tell you, so many marriages are missing out on God's best for their marriage because they're refusing to obey what God's clear plan in the Word is until they fully understand it. God, did you really mean I'm supposed to submit to my husband? Do you know who my husband is? God, do you really want me to love her? Do you know what she said last night? She fell asleep so early last night. I came home, I was so excited, and she was conked out because, oh, we got three kids under five, and she's exhausted, and she's just not caring for my needs. And you want me to love her? And then we wake up when we're 45 and 50 and 60, and we go, well, we just grew apart. And we grew apart because we failed to pursue God's plan even when we didn't fully understand. Why do we neglect memorizing and studying and meditating on God's Word? For many of us, the excuse is time, but for some of you, you're like, I don't understand what difference it makes. I don't understand how God takes me meditating on His Word to put it in my brain, get it in my heart, and make me more like Jesus. I don't understand it either, but that's what God says He does. And if we wait to do that, If we wait to do that until we fully understand why God has given us the plan, we'll never get around to doing it. And I want you to understand something. A failure to work God's plan because you don't understand it is a failure to trust God. You're putting yourself ahead of God who gave the plan. God, I need more information. No, you don't. It's God. The same thing could be said for praying. Some people say they don't pray because they don't have time. You know, you can plan to pray. You can make a plan. But other people don't pray because they say, well, if God's in control of everything anyway, if He really stands over the universe, if He's Lord of all, then what difference does my praying make? I don't know. But here's what I do know. God says He works through the praying of His people. And that somehow those two things are not contradictory to one another. That God is supernatural, He's sovereign, He's overall, and yet He's entrusted us with the responsibility to pray. That He brings people into the kingdom when we pray. That He heals people when we pray. That He changes marriages when we pray. That He grows churches when we pray. And so we ought to pray. And if we wait to understand how it is that praying works, some of us will never get around to praying and will miss out on what God wants to do through the prayers of His people. The options are endless. Why do we plan to be involved in a church, to serve, to share the gospel, to invite our friends to church and so on? Why do we make plans to do these things? Not because our plans are great, but because when we make a plan to pursue the purposes of God, it forces us out of our comfort zones and into the land of depending upon the Lord who puts us in places and moments where we've done what we could do and we've asked God to work and He does. Church, the old adage is true. 
even in our spiritual lives, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. And by God's grace, we do not have to invent our own plans. That's why God gives us local churches, He gives us leaders, and He gives us the Holy Spirit, and He gives us His Word so that we can know His will, we can discern His plan in our moment, and we can pursue it with all that we have and all that we are. So this morning, I don't know what burden you brought in. I don't know what hesitation you bring with you to pursue God's plan, but I know God has one in your life, and I know that following Jesus means following His plan like Esther did, even when you don't fully understand. And you say, why would I do that? Here's why you would do that. Because we serve a king who followed God's plan when he knew it would cost him his life. He left the glory of heaven for the express purpose of becoming a man, laying his life down, being crucified on an old rugged cross, being raised from the grave on the third day. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew the plan. And he said, God, is, are you sure there's no other way? And he sweat drops of blood over it. And the Father said, you know this is the plan. And he said, then let's go for the glory of God and the good of the people who trust in me. And if you trust in Jesus, even death is overcome. So why not pursue the plans that God has for you, no matter what it may cost. So the invitation this morning is this. If you know Jesus, but you've been holding back in your marriage, in your praying, in your sharing of the gospel, in your reading of His Word, today's the day to say, I'm going to follow God, and I'm going to work the plan no matter what. And if you don't know Jesus, and you know that if you died today, that you would not benefit from the one who left heaven to fulfill the plan of God to save those who trust in Him, don't live another day like that. Don't live another day without the power of God to pursue the purposes of God and know the joy of the presence of God in your life. Come and say, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I want to trust Jesus and I want to follow Him. And if you do that and have time, I'll dunk you today. So whatever your need, I'm going to pray and invite our praise team to come. We're going to sing, and you're welcome to join us. You're welcome to do business with God. Let's pray together. God in heaven, I thank you for your presence in this room today. I thank you for your presence in the gymnasium today. I thank you for the word that you have given to us and the example of Esther who emerged from her doubt to pursue the plan of God no matter what it costs her, even what, when she did not fully understand. So Lord, I pray in this room that you would be active, that you would be real, that you would be working in the, the lives of husbands and wives and children and grandchildren and aunts and uncles to move them out to pursue your plan with boldness and courage, knowing that they can because of what Christ has done. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.